As, as you're aware, we have, we're now starting a new summer sermon series called Stories to Share. And what we're going to be do, do is look at various parables of Jesus. Now, if you are new to the Bible, a parable is simply a story that Jesus told that illustrates a big truth, right? So it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So if you have your Bible with you, would you like to turn to the book of Luke, which is one of the New Testament Gospels, and it's chapter 15. So Luke chapter 15 is where our parable for tonight is, and it is the parable of the lost coin. And it's Jesus speaking, and he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Don't you just absolutely hate it when you lose something? It's the worst, isn't it? Whether you lose your phone or the TV remote, I think I spend weeks of my life looking for the TV remote in the couch. Your hair, guys, I mean, that's a costly loss, isn't it? Like, that, I mean, geez. Your wallet, your pet python. Yeah, I come from Africa, it's a real problem. Your keys. That one sock, seriously, what happens in the laundry? I've got, I found this great um, cartoon that says, okay, everyone remember the buddy system. I don't know what happens in the laundry, but somehow socks, it's like a Bermuda Triangle. What about Wally? Seriously, this guy, he has been lost for 25 years and I still can't find him anywhere. It's one of the most exasperating things in my life. But these aren't the only things that go missing. Sometimes extremely valuable and priceless things get lost. For example, imperial Fabergé eggs. These are some of them. Um, there are seven of these intricately carved, bejeweled, golden Easter eggs that were actually made for Russian royalty that have gone missing. Or how about treasure ships? like the Flor de la Mar. This 400-ton Portuguese ship sailed in the 1500s, and in 1511, it was caught in a violent storm, and it was shipwrecked, and it sunk, never to be found again. It is considered the greatest um, sunken treasure, the holy grail of, of sunken treasure, because at the time when it went down, it was carrying this vast Portuguese treasure trove of gold, silver, and jewels that's estimated today to be over $2 billion worth. Everybody is hunting for the Flor de la Mar. And believe it or not, governments even lose nuclear bombs. Not kidding. According to various um, organizations, watchdog organizations, including Greenpeace, apparently there are 50 5-0 nuclear bombs missing. A lot of them are lost at sea. So Nemo has one in his living room, basically. Sharks are using them in their underwater temp and bowling league. I don't know. But there is a nuclear apocalypse floating around under the water. There have been many significant and priceless things that have gone missing over the centuries. But of all the things that have ever been lost in the entire history of mankind, what do you suppose God would consider to be the most valuable? I think he'd pick Wally. Now, not specifically men dressed as giant candy canes, but 
just people, lost people, are what God deeply values. And actually, Jesus told this parable to help us understand just how much God loves lost people, how much he loves finding lost people. I think that one of God's hobbies, probably his favorite hobby, is reading through those Where's Wally books because he just loves finding lost people so much. So let's read the parable. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. So it's Luke 15 verse eight. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in this parable, lost people are represented by the lost coin, and through the figure of the searching woman, God depicts his incredible love and concern and heart to find them and restore them. But what strikes me most about this parable is actually that the focus of the parable is not so much about the lostness of the coin. It's actually the focus is on the effort and the search of the looking one, the woman. And you know, Jesus didn't say that when the woman discovered that her coin was lost, you know, she totally freaked out or she bemoaned her loss, you know, she took out her phone and she opened Instagram and kind of woefully scrolled through all the pictures she took of her and the coin at Butlins last year before it went missing, you know, weeping delicately over her loss. What Jesus said is she lit a lamp, she got a broom, and she searched carefully for it. So her search was systematic, it was diligent, she put some effort into the search. Have you ever searched for something lost with that kind of effort and intensity. I have. What's the most expensive thing you've ever lost? In the year 2000, I lost a red VW Polo. (laughs) There it is. This is me in the car in happier times before I lost it, briefly, for the record. But yeah, you heard me correctly. I lost an entire car. Now, it is quite hard to lose a car because of its substantial size and weight, but I managed to do it thanks to a massive snowstorm. Now, I was living in New York at the time. It was December, it was Christmas, and this intensely huge blizzard hit New York City. It was 150 miles wide and 500 miles long, and it just absolutely thumped us with white-out snow, and it was hectic. And so airports closed, you know, Santa and his reindeer were redirected to warmer states, and these poor people in their snow plows and salt spreaders were desperately fighting to keep the roads open over the Christmas period. And I'm not kidding, regular civilians like us were warned, in fact, commanded to stay indoors because if we were found outside, they would actually arrest us because it was that dangerous. So it was pretty intense. So when the blizzard finally ended, it took about four days. Christmas, we we had a lock-in at Christmas. And um, when we finally came out of our houses, firstly, we had to actually dig out of the front door because it was like so much snow. But I actually could not see my car parked anywhere on the road outside of my house where I had left it before the snow hit. And um, being a foreigner from an African country, I did not understand the laws and physics associated with snowstorms and snowplows. So 
you know, snow is this kind of mythical thing in South Africa. You know, it's sort of something we hear about as people sing it on these Christmas songs that play over the radio in the blistering heat of our summer Decembers. And so I literally had no idea. I genuinely thought that a snowplow had somehow ferried my vehicle away along with the snow. And then my second thought was, oh my gosh, someone's towed my car because maybe my car was obstructing the snowplow or something. Like I was literally panicking in public. And then a very kind neighbor came out of his house and said, okay, calm down to panic. Um, your car is still there. It's just embedded into this giant snowbank that's almost roof high, the full length of the road on each side. And I was like, oh great, um, where exactly did I park my car three days ago? Like I couldn't actually quite remember specifically where about it was. I knew which side of the road it was on, but I couldn't really remember. And so I basically spent the next three hours digging into the snowbank with the kind of passion that I haven't seen in anything other than Scrat. You know that squirrel thing from Ice Age? <laughs> that thing searching for his nut is like I was digging into the snowbank with this sort of rabid passion to find my vehicle. And um, I would dig, dig, dig till I hit something hard, find that it was a vehicle, go until I could see some paintwork, and if it wasn't red, you know, dig some more somewhere else. But I eventually found my car, and I dug it out, and then ended up having to do about a 45-point turn to get it out of the very tiny hole that I dug free from my vehicle. But I didn't adopt a sort of casual, let's wait and see if it's still there when the snow melts approach. And the reason is, I really valued my car. Like, I had the energy and the effort, and I was committed to the search because I valued my car so much. And the moral of the story is, you and I are just like pirates. We will hunt for what we treasure. At the end of the day, we will hunt for what we love, what we treasure, what we're committed to, what we value. And this parable is about one of the greatest treasure hunts in the history of mankind. It is nothing like the numerous attempts. The, there have been so many international attempts to try and rediscover and salvage the sunken treasure of the Flor de la Mar. All of those pale in comparison to the great treasure hunt that God initiated and did to find us, to find you and me when we were lost in our sin. The Bible says that he made, God made you and I, male and female, men and women, in his image and his likeness. He made us with dignity, value, worth, and purpose. He made us to be in close relationship with him. But every single one of us, in different ways, chose to walk away from God. We chose to live our lives our way. And to some degree, deep down on some level, people tend to think that they are each their own God, declaring what is moral, right, and wrong, and living our own lives by our own standards. The Bible calls this sin. And God defines sin in much wider terms than simply the kind of big ones, you know, murder, or violence, or abuse. The Bible says that sin is missing the mark. So the idea is of, you know, those kind of targets that you would fire an arrow to from a distance. The idea is that of missing that mark, so the arrow goes wide and it doesn't hit the destination. So basically, sin is failing to measure up to God's minimum standard of being or behavior. And sin, in any amount, will distance us relationally from God. 
We've all experienced that kind of relational distance that happens when something goes wrong between us and somebody else, right? We've all had that experience where one person's hurt another or there's something that's happened and there's a distance, there's a barrier that's between us in our friendship until that thing is dealt with and that thing is addressed and apologized for and forgiven and made right. And it's the same sort of thing with us in God. We can't unsin our sins to make things right with God. The two options we have are to live a perfect sinless life in the first place, which is a bit late for that, or to pay the penalty for our sin, which unfortunately is death. So that's the options. And um, God could have given up on us. He could have started over on some other planet with a, a bunch of shiny, new, less lost human beings, but he didn't because he loves us. He loves each one of us so much that he didn't want to write us off and start over. And so what God did was he climbed into human history in the form of Jesus. And Jesus was born of a virgin and he lived that perfect sinless life that you and I never managed to live. Even though he was tempted to sin in every way as we are. And then what Jesus did is he sacrificed himself on our behalf. So he substituted himself willingly and took upon himself all of our sin. Everything that we've ever sinned in the past, everything that we're ever gonna do wrong in the future. And he took that upon himself and what he did is he died in our place because the punishment for sin is death. And so Jesus died to bear that punishment upon him. And this is a phenomenal exchange that happens now because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we should have died so that that sin barrier between us and God could be dealt with and that we could come into that close relationship again with God. And Jesus' dead body was laid in a tomb and for three days he was buried. And on the third day he rose again in victory and in power proving that he was God. And he went back to heaven in victory. And today he is there, he is alive, and he is well, and he is still pursuing you and me with his love, with his relentless love. He is still calling us into relationship with him. That is the search for the lost coin that this parable speaks of. And if you're here tonight and you would not consider yourself to be a Christian, know that you are so greatly loved by God. You are so dearly prized and adored and wanted by the almighty God that he did everything necessary to find you. So you have already been found by God in the sense that God has already done everything needed to bring you back into close relationship with him. The question is, how are you gonna respond to that? You might feel like you've still got a lot of questions and you're not sure and you know, you, you, there's more to process for you. And if that's the case, you might find that you wanna, you wanna do the Alpha course, which is something that we're running again in the autumn term. That's a great place to kind of process questions that you have about faith and ask those questions and find out more. But you might also feel ready to respond tonight. If you feel like you're ready tonight, to make that step, to respond to what Jesus did for you, to say, yes, I wanna be in relationship with you, God, then we're gonna pray later on today, tonight, and I'll, I'm very happy to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. But what about the rest of us? How should we, if we're Christians, respond to this parable and what it shows us about the heart and the nature of our God? How are we called to be in light of this purposeful focus that we see in God 
to pursue lost people, to find them and to restore them back into relationship with God? We, we already know the answer, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. Um, Jesus already laid it out for us pretty clearly in Matthew 28 when, you know, it's called the Great Commission. When he asks, he commissions, he calls every single follower of, of him to join his mission in seeking and finding and redeeming lost people and bringing them back into this relationship with God. Jesus was no half-hearted evangelist. He was 100% committed to this mission of finding lost people. And he calls us to do the same, to be the same. How have you and I responded to this call to action? Some of us might be great at evangelism. You know, there are some people who just, they find it easy, they love it, they do it all the time. And if you're that person, that's great. Please, can I learn from you? Because I don't find it that easy. Others of us may have tried, like genuinely, you know, there's people that we've tried to speak to, we've tried to tell our story, our God story, and you know, things just went terribly wrong. Got a bit messy, it just didn't work out the way we'd hoped it would. And so now we're, you know, we're a bit hesitant to try it again, so we kind of move towards evangelism at the speed of a tortoise traversing backwards through extra chunky peanut butter. <laughs> you know? There's other, others of us, if we're brutally honest, if, if we're really real, we don't really think about lost people much. We don't really consider evangelism, it's not really on our radar daily. It's not something that we really think about. And then there's others of us who, you know, we really want to, to evangelize. We, we care about people who are lost. We want them to know the good news, but we just don't know where to start. We don't know how to how to initiate a conversation, how to, what to do with it, like, it's just this thing that we feel a bit intimidated by. And if I'm honest, that's probably the camp that I'm in. I find, I find evangelism a little bit overwhelming and a bit scary. And evangelism is actually much like a salmon swimming upstream. I'm sure you've all thought of that yourselves many times. Um, but a salmon that swims upstream, that's called the salmon run. Um, basically, salmon are born high up near the mouth of the river, and then they have a great ride down to the ocean, hang out in the ocean, get big, get strong, and then for some strange reason, they swim back up the river to the exact same place that they were born to lay their own eggs or babies, whichever version they come out on. And um, this salmon run, right? So a salmon is going against the flow of the current, jumping and kind of swimming, and it's really impressive, actually, if you think about it. And if a salmon halfway up this river were to just sort of, you know, chill, kind of not really swim or jump anymore, it just sort of, you know, lays about, have a day off, right? What would happen to that fish? It would immediately begin being swept back down towards the sea with the current, right? It's physics or laws, nature stuff, right? And um, so in this analogy, we are the salmon, just so we're all clear. And um, our goal is encountering and building relationships with people who are not in relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of where we're heading to. And if at any point we stop doing those things that propel our kind of focus and our energy and our effort and our heart towards engaging meaningfully with people who are not in relationship with God, what's going to happen to us? 
Although we might not actively be making that decision to turn around and swim away from them, what's going to naturally happen is that our heart is going to start floating further and further and further away with the natural current of the busyness of life and distractions. So how do we effectively engage in this thing called evangelism? In my preparation for this talk, I read a great book. This is it. It's called More Ways Than One, Evangelism in the Postmodern World. And it's written by J. John and 14 other authors. So each author takes their own chapter. And it's, it's a fantastic book. It, the, each person looks at evangelism from a slightly different perspective. And it's really helpful. If, if evangelism is something that you're wanting to grow in and learn more about, I can really recommend this book to you. It's a great book. And so what I'm going to base this next part of my talk on is actually from one of the chapters written by Paul McGee. So I'm not claiming to have thought of all of this just using my own brain. Um, it's, a lot of this is what Paul McGee suggests, and I think it's brilliant. So he says, the best place to start evangelism would be to look at how Jesus approached it, right? Because he was like the ultimate. He was like ninja-level evangelist, right? Black belt evangelism. And so we're going to do that tonight. So firstly... And this is deep, guys, so get, you, get ready to make the notes. Jesus spent time with non-believers. Now, I know that's not exactly brand new information, but it's kind of the biggest part. And the thing is, and this is something that I struggle with myself as well, is that people who've been Christians for a while, for many years, you know, they actually find themselves so immersed in church life and church culture that they may cease to have many or any meaningful relationships and friendships with non-believers, okay? So I work for a church, I actually work for this church, and um, so I don't have any non-Christian people that I come across at work. They're, I think they're all saved though. Um, and then obviously I'm foreign, so I didn't grow up here, so I don't have like friends here that you know, I've known all my life. And then I don't have kids, so I don't kind of meet other parents or other moms at kind of school or the playgroups or whatever. I'm clearly not physically athletic, so it's just like where my challenge is how am I gonna you know, find ways to meaningfully intersect with other people who don't come to Trinity? And, uh, the lady in this parable, what did she use? It said she, she lit a lamp and she got a broom to search. So what are the lamps and the brooms that we have available to us in our lives that will help us reach people that we might not otherwise reach, but reach people who are all around us? What creative ideas or means or methods do we have at our disposal that will help us get out of the Christian bubble you know, and kind of intentionally weave non-believers into our life and build real deep and meaningful friendships with them. Um, I know some people who started a football team because they like football, they want to exercise, and they thought that's a great way to kind of interact with other people and, you know, meet other people. In um, some of you know Alex, he used to be at St. Paul's. He loved board games, and he started this kind of community board game night where anyone could bring a board game and just hang out and play. He loved board games. That was his thing. Like, it was a great idea. I know in my other church in South Africa, before I came here, the guys actually started a poker league. Now, I'm not advocating gambling, but 
They're, it wasn't for money, they had a prize that they'd win at the end of the night, but this poker league was phenomenal. These guys all brought their friends to that because it's an easy thing to kind of bring someone to. I know someone else who really enjoys cooking, and so she actually started a cooking class for students who've just moved out of house and are living on cereal to help them not die of malnutrition. What a great idea. She loves cooking. What, she's going to help someone with this. It's a great idea. So what are your ideas? What are the things you love? What are the skills you have or the interests you have that you might be able to use to intersect with other people who are not in Trinity's family? I have injuries. That's kind of my thing. And so I know it's sad, but it's true. Um, so about two and a half years ago, I hurt my back, and um, I've been going to physio, and the other day, my physio, my osteopath actually said to me, hey, we are running a um, Pilates class designed specifically for people who have bad backs or back injuries to help them strengthen their core, and I'm like, there's my lamp, there's my broom, I have injuries, I'm going to encounter people through my injuries. Another thing I did is I went to Slimming World. I figured I'm going to go to, you know, Fat Club. I got fat, and I can reach people who are also there. That's a great idea. What's your thing? You have a thing. What's your thing? Um, so there you go. You can think about that. Number two, Jesus asked questions. Jesus' main way of engaging with people was actually to have a dialogue rather than a monologue. Okay, so when it came to interacting with people who didn't follow him, Jesus wasn't about speaking for hours on end. He actually had a conversation with them. And for us, as we are encountering people who aren't a part of the church, and we have conversations about our faith or our life or God or what's going on in our lives, you know, rather than seeking to give people all the answers, like give them the monologue, the speech, it would actually be quite effective to have a conversation. You know, and not use it like a formula, but actually genuinely seek to hear the other person. So, for example, if you have a friend who's an atheist, right? Instead of launching into your 10-point reasons why you believe God exists, it might be more effective to ask them why they came to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. Or how they came to that point. Like, what happened in their life that... They led them to that point, and actually that starts a conversation. It's a dialogue, isn't it? And that invites people into a conversation rather than kind of just preaching at people. Number three, Jesus told stories. So Jesus was the great storyteller. This whole sermon series was based on his stories, some of his parables. And everyone loves a good story, don't they? You go into a bookstore and the autobiography and biography section is huge because people love hearing what other people think and get up to. They love, they're fascinated by it. Are you and I, are we comfortable and confident sharing our God story with other people? I don't have this together yet. So part of the whole injury thing with me is when I was 13, I fell. I had an accident. I fell three stories, right? I didn't fall out of a window, which is what everyone thinks automatically, like I'm just opening the window and like, oh, oh, I'm not that silly. I fell off something called a zip line, which is like, you know, you hang kind of, but in South Africa, there's no such thing as health and safety. So you're not harnessed on, you're hanging on just with willpower and your upper body strength, which at 13 is not that great. So I was on this thing, three stories up, fell off. It, it jammed and threw me off. I didn't just like, anyway, fall off. So I fell off. Now, Gravity had its way with me in a very strong 
experience. And I don't want to ruin the suspense by telling you right now whether or not I died, but <laughs> I'll tell you later. But one of the injuries that I sustained as part of this dramatic fall to earth was I snapped my right hand clean off, like my, straight through both bones, and my hand ended up up my arm. It was this great zigzag. <laughs> really cool. And um, what followed that was 10 years of recovery work to get the use of this hand back. I had to have six operations over the course of 10 years. Um, for the first two years, I had to have physio every single day for two hours. So I lost the use of my hand. When they pulled my hand back down again, they didn't do it right and trapped everything. So I lost my hand went into this little fist and I had to have operation to free it. And then it went back into a fist. I had like a permanent claw, guys. <laughs> and uh, lots of physio, you know, a lot of work. And in the end, the doctors had done everything they could, and I was left with limited functionality in this arm. So I could flip it 90 degrees, but I couldn't flip it all the way over, right? Because there was something wrong with the bones, and they'd lock and stuff. And, but about four years ago, I think it was about four years ago, during a Naturally Supernatural conference that we were hosting here, I went up for prayer, and God totally healed my hand. So I have full movement in my wrist, which I never had before. So God's kind of cool. But... A couple of weeks ago, again, I was at physio, because that's where I spend most of my time. And um, I was chatting with my osteopath, and he was like, oh, tell me about this fall. You know, they're always interested in that kind of thing. How high did you bounce? All that sort of stuff. And to be, I bounced over a person. That's how much speed I had going. Um, anyway, and I went into detail. So the operations and all the physio, because he's interested in that, and all the recovery work and the exercises. And then I closed my mouth. I didn't, I'm sorry to say go on to say, and then God healed me completely, and this is amazing because I chickened out. In that moment, guys, I chickened out, and I'm not proud of it, you know, I'm, I'm gutted that I missed that opportunity. And Andrew said last week in his sermon, you know, we are called to be witnesses to what God has done in our lives. And are you, am I, always on the lookout for opportunities to share our God stories? And when they come along, do we actually take them or do we, like I did in that one, bail and kind of chicken out because I thought he would think I was crazy, which I am, but. So, you know, this is something that God's actually challenging me on massively at the moment is, is, is having the confidence to go for it when those opportunities come. And one thing Paul McGee says is, you know, tell your micro stories because they can reach people with the meta-narrative of Jesus Christ. So your micro stories are telling the big story of what God's doing. And lastly, number four, and most importantly, Jesus genuinely loved people. You know, Andrew, again, spoke last week on God's only concern being love, that it's at the very core of who he is. You know, God is not a loving being. He, it's not, love is not something God does. Love is who God is. It, he is the embodiment of love. He is the origin of love, right? So God loved people, and he loved us so much, that's why Jesus came, to save us. You know, we, the most, probably the best known verse in the Bible is John 3:16. For God so loved the world. Not God was mad and he wanted to slap us. God loved us, that's why he came. And so Jesus came because God loved us and Jesus came and simply loved us. You know, Jesus didn't befriend people to convert them. He wasn't, you know, he didn't use people like that. He didn't turn them into some sort of a project. Whether people followed him or not, Jesus still loved them. He still listened to them, he still spent time with them. He knew whether or not they would follow him. 
but he still loved them with no extra strings attached. And what did Jesus say to us? He said, love your neighbor, full stop. Not if they're worth loving or if they're nice. He said, love them and love them better than the world loves them. Church, will we still love our non-believing friends, our non-Christian friends? Will we still spend time with them even when the gospel conversations we're trying to have with them have reached a cul-de-sac? even when they're not planning on following us into a church? Are we still committed to loving them anyway and to being their friend in the long run? Yes, always continue to hope and trust and pray that they will come into a relationship with God, but determine in your heart to love them regardless. How is our love towards non-believers? You know, does it have terms and conditions attached Is it available because they're meeting the right criteria? Or is it available, you know, with an expiry date? You know, like you've asked them four times to Alpha and they've still said no, so tough. You know, I can't ask them again, I'm done. They don't wanna know God. You know, biblical love, which is described in 1 Corinthians 13, says love always perseveres. Such a tough thing, isn't it? But that's how Jesus did it, that's how Jesus loved. So those are just four of the ways that Jesus effectively engaged people with the big story, the good news. There's way more than that, get the book, it's a great book, there's lots in there. Um, But there are four of them. And I wanna end my talk with a quote from the NIV application commentary, and it's on this passage of the lost coin, and it said, love compelled him, that's Jesus, to rescue the perishing. If Jesus' attitude and perspective possesses such a theology of lost persons, so should ours. We are called to action because we appreciate just how much heaven wants to search for those who are lost. Heaven so wants to search for lost people. It's what they're all about. And heaven so wants us to search for lost people as well. God cares so deeply for lost people and he is unwaveringly committed to finding them and restoring them into right relationship with him. Church, let's join him in this mission. This is his primary mission. Let's join him in that. Let's share his theology of lost people, you know, truly valuing them as people, loving them without conditions you know, doing everything we can to actually encounter them and build real friendships with them, actually caring about them, weaving them into our lives. Let's continue to align our hearts with the heart of our loving, pursuing God.